This is our Simone Dome reading group, uh, continuing with our reading of Individuation, Volume 2, uh, the text History of the Notion of the Individual. Um, we stopped last time on page 566 of the PDF, uh, and we, uh, so we're, we're on the section on Descartes. Um, we're about halfway through that section. Uh, and so we looked at um, Simone Dome's analysis of the Cogito argument and uh, he points out um, something that I think is a little bit distinct from uh, maybe some other commentators on this very famous argument uh, is is that um, in in Descartes' presentation there's a sort of um, uh, step from uh, there's a sort of argument uh, that that passes from the initial idea of this um, uh, evil uh, genie that um, that sort of makes me um, makes me mistake anything that I think about, um, you know, when I try to add two plus two or when I try to count the sides of a square, um, this spirit makes me uh, make a mistake every time. Um, but when I think uh, something like I think or I doubt or any other uh, uh, action of the intellect, uh, it's impossible for me to be mistaken about that, um, about that, uh, about the uh, about my existence um because uh if the this evil spirit um uh is making me mistaken is um sort of uh, tricking me in some way then i have to be substantially distinct i have to be a, a distinct substance or a distinct entity from that spirit um and so i have to be something um no matter what uh how you know mistaken i might be about what i am or what kind of thing i am uh, I'm still something. I'm not nothing. Uh, so it's um, there's this moment of um, uh, the substantial distinctness of of me as a, a thinking thing. I, I have to be substantially distinct from this evil spirit, no matter how uh, mistaken I might be about anything else. Uh, and so that's a, a sort of interesting um, analysis of the cogito argument that uh, Simon Don uh, provides here. Um, and then he also talks about um, one of the key difficulties or probably the key difficulty of the Cartesian doctrine, which is the union of the body and the soul. Uh, so the cogito proves that I exist, um, uh, but it does so only insofar as I'm a thinking thing, as uh, insofar as I'm something that thinks. Uh, and um, Descartes holds that this, uh, this thinking is the essence of what I am. So I am essentially a thinking thing. Uh, and and the thinking thing or the soul uh, is uh, a substance, so it's something that um, exists in its own right uh, and not in something else. Uh, and then this substance, the thinking thing, uh, has to be distinct from the body, um, an extended thing, because we can conceive them to be separate. We can think of uh, a body without thought, and we can think of the soul as being uh, separate from the body. Uh, and so because we can conceive them as separate, they, they have to be um, distinct substances. They, they, can't, um, they can't belong to the same uh, entity. Um, but at the same time, we, even though the body and the soul are distinct substances, they're united in some way because we know that we can, uh, we can will uh, to move our hand or to write or walk or whatever. Uh, and we also um, experience sensations when our body is affected by various um, other bodies in the world surrounding us. Uh, and so there's some sort of union between the body and the soul. 
but um, Descartes holds that this union is something that surpasses human understanding. We we know that there is a union, uh, and we know that um, we are uh, a combination of body and soul, uh, but we can't understand how this union comes about. Uh, it's something that God does uh, uh, by a sort of um, specific act. He unites the body and the soul, uh, and we can't understand how this union happens. Uh, and so a lot of people, uh, even in uh, the 17th century, found this explanation or, or sort of non-explanation not very satisfying. Uh, they wanted to have a, a, a comprehensible account of how the body and the soul uh, interact with each other or are united with, with each other. Um, so this is sort of the key point of difficulty um, in, in the Cartesian doctrine. Um, and then we also, uh, the last thing I think I want to mention before we get, get started on today's reading is the, there was this footnote, um, which is uh, footnote 95 in the translation, um, or endnote 95, I should say, um, which is a, a long endnote, about a page long, um, which... Uh, for whatever reason, Simon Dong sort of inserts uh, a summary, like a one-page summary of his whole philosophical system of individuation and uh, transductive thinking and so on uh, into this um, study of uh, Descartes' philosophy. Um, so um, anyone who is following along on, on the translation um, should make sure to look at the end note, um, that, that one-page end note, because it's a very important um, explanation uh, or summary of the whole philosophical system. Okay, uh, so yeah, let's start on today's reading. Uh, Angus, if you want to start, yeah, from here, again, the paradoxical. Yeah, no problem. Here again, the paradoxical aspect of the individual becomes apparent. The ordered action is not one that is locked into the choice of what is predictable and already given. Such an action would be fruitless. To be ordered in singular, action must surpass itself and always be new. Action is a gesture based on a situation that transforms this situation so as to justify itself in this transformed situation. The gesture unfolds according to the situation that it creates. It can only insert itself in the situation that it creates. The individual can realize its unity only the individual can realize its unity only be only it must be only by seeming to detach from its identity. There is identity only at the end of action. The conditions of generous action require a superabundance of being. The individual is the source of this superabundance of being in the situation through which he universalizes himself by resolving the problem that held him captive in the particularity of a singular situation. The Sid has rediscovered universality. Uh, this is the meaning of the words proclaimed by the kid at the or the king at the end of the tragedy. It is no longer merely a matter of knowing if the Sid will be able to narrate. Shinan, but of learning that this exceptional situation has come to an end. Uh, that is the true resolution of the work. Two incompatible obligations have been compatibilized through generous action. For Descartes, the incompatibilities become indeterminations. There isn't one term too many, but not enough given. It's the individual who determines the givens by completing them through his action. The individual is creator of universality. This is how the foremost character of Descartes' method is explained, which founds method in the knowledge that the intelligence grasps of its own nature, and consequently of the, con of the conditions of its exercise. Quote-unquote, universal science resides in this knowledge of the intelligence. For Descartes, this intellectus is a starting point in a fulcrum. The certainty of intuitive knowledge can gradually extend to the truths that depend on it. 
intuition, this natural light, uh, in quotes, this uh, quote-unquote intellectual instinct allows us to perceive not only truths, but also the link between a truth and that which immediately depends on it. Deduction, which is a connection between truth and is always exerted on certain propositions, but never on probable propositions, supposes that the mind can have a full and complete certainty of a particular object without having a total certainty concerning the real as a whole. The human individual's limitation does not prevent intellectual knowledge of the real. It merely forces us to employ a method that ensures the transfer of certainty. For this method to be fruitful, it must be constructive. Measurement guarantees certainty. Order guarantees fruitfulness. Descartes' great methodological discovery is the is that of the connection between measurement and order. Before him, order indeed existed as a philosophical principle, particularly in Neoplatonism. This order was a hierarchical arrangement of heterogeneous realities that did not permit the exercise of measurement. That is because there is measurement only of the homogeneous. For Descartes, on the contrary, order is a progress of homogeneous. It therefore permits measurement. Yeah, we can uh, stop here for now. Um, this is a multi-page paragraph, um, as we often experience with Simondo. Um, uh, right, so we're, we're still um, discussing uh, Descartes' moral philosophy. And so this moral philosophy is presented as a provisional um, provisional morals or provisional uh, system of, of ethics. So um, we, as... Um, we start in in our understanding of the world we have to sort of forget everything that we learned in school um the scholastic philosophy uh we have to um almost start from zero and sort of reconstruct the system of human knowledge um and so ultimately we would like to have uh, a, a system of ethics that would allow us to um uh, sort of derive our ethical or moral um uh, principles from uh, an established science, but uh, in the meantime, while we're still constructing that science, we still need to act in the world. We can't sort of wait until we have a perfect science before we decide, you know, whether to join this army like Descartes did, or um, uh, swear allegiance to whatever prince, or um, you know, vote for wh whatever political candidate. We still have to act in the world um, uh, while we're waiting for this complete science to be established, um, and so. Um, Simondo's analysis here of this provisional morality is that this provisional system is actually sort of the definitive system for Descartes because we're finite beings, we're, we'll never have that um, established uh, complete science of the world that would uh, allow us to derive a, a non-provisional morality. Uh, so we have to, it's this system of provisional morality that is um, sort of the the final morality for Descartes, um, and he Simondo analyzes it in terms of his own his own um, um, concepts of the problem and uh, uh, reconciling incompatible incompatible um, aspects of a problem situation. Uh, so um, he so he he get, he refers here to um, Corneille's uh, tragedy Le Cid. Um, which I have not read, so I can't really um, explain some of these references that are a little bit obscure. But um, the idea here, as far as I can understand it, is that um, in facing a problem, um, we so we a problem consists of some kind of incompatible propositions or incompatible goals that we want to realize. Uh, so we we want to 
we we have an obligation to do x and an obligation to do y but x and y are incompatible with each other in some way um and uh solving this problem consists in uh uh finding some third term some uh further determination of the problem that allows for those two terms to become compatible uh so they they were incompatible and now they're they're compatible with each other uh as a result of this further determination of the problem uh and so this this is sort of the general form of what a, a problem solving for it consists in uh as far as simon Do interprets descartes uh, system here um and then he he passes on to um a discussion of the idea of method um and so this is of course a central idea for descartes um you know one of his first texts was a, the discourse on method uh, which is sort of his introduction to his new approach to science. Uh, um, and one of the key ideas is this notion of deduction as transmitting certainty. So we start from something that is completely certain, like the cogito, or uh, specifically the cogito, uh, our certainty of our own existence. Uh, and then we deduce from this absolutely certain proposition, uh, we deduce other propositions that uh, receive their, their own certainty um, that that is transmitted from the cogito to this second proposition, and then that certainty is again transmitted to a third, and so on. Um, and uh, this notion of method um, um, brings about a, a sort of transformation of uh, the representation of order, um, because now we have to understand order. So previous philosophical systems like the Neoplatonists that that Simon Don refers to here. Had understood order in hierarchical terms. So there's an order of the universe um, in the sense that there's a hierarchy of beings with humans somewhere near the bottom, um, uh, slightly above the, the realm of pure matter, which is the lowest level. Um, and then human beings are uh, above that level because we have an intellect and intellectual capacities to grasp the forms. Uh, and then there is the realm of the forms, and then there's the realm of the one or the order of the one above the form. Uh, this is the sort of um, Neoplatonist picture of the hierarchy of uh, of beings. Uh, whereas for Descartes, um, we we have the notion of order that does not depend on a hierarchy of beings. So we can uh, we can apply something like measurements to uh, to the way order is understood. And we should think here, I think, of the um, uh, Cartesian coordinates. Uh, so one of Descartes' um, sort of methodological innovations in geometry was to uh, associate um, a pair of numbers with every point on a plane. Uh, and so what we now describe as x and y coordinates. Um, and this is something that, of course, we we teach. I don't know in grade grade three or four or something uh, today. Um, we teach kids how to um, draw a curve based on. Uh, a set of numbers or to take uh, a shape uh, and find the numbers associated with the points of that of that shape um, but this was a, a new idea that that um, Descartes uh, introduces and it allows for uh, the solution of various geometrical problems that can't be solved without passing through um, the numerical um, uh, sort of order uh, and uh, Descartes takes this to also apply to the the physical world, so we can understand how um, how physical bodies interact uh, using um, geometrical knowledge that we derive from this uh, Cartesian coordinate approach. Uh, and so 
there's a, a kind of because the whole world is um, homogenous in this sense, um, it is not sort of divided up into different realms, uh, different levels of being. Um, because of this homogeneity, we can apply the same notions of order and measure that we use in geometry. We can apply them to uh, physical understanding of the world as well. Um, one thing in this that uh, section I just read that isn't totally clear to me is this notion of universality as um, the individual is creator of universality at the end of this process of problem resolution. I don't know if he is if there's a connection here between the ethical problem resolution and the deductive um, progression in the argument from the, the Kogito. Uh, I know in the next section we talks about Pascal there he talks about how an invention um, is a response to a problem and the invention is always a there's always something singular and not generalizable about the uh, invention that responds to a particular problem so maybe the universality is the generalizability of the response to the problem which is somehow uh, related to this I don't know, the transferability that I guess is possible in the homogeneity um, that you were discussing as exemplified by the Cartesian coordinates. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think, um, so in the ethical order or the moral order, um, we, we are faced with singular problems in the sense that we have to decide, you know, do I join this army or, or do I stay at home and study mathematics or whatever the exact choice was that Descartes was faced with. Um, uh, we have to, um, you know, it's, it's me as this particular, uh, as this singular being um, uh, faced with um, this specific situation, this choice that happens at this particular moment in time uh, that has to make a decision. Um, and so this, this um, problem solving um, uh, that, that I have to uh, perform is as a kind of uh, singularity to it. Um, it it's not something that has a, a generality to it. Um, but then at the same time, um, when I do find a solution, when I, when I um, make compatible what previously was incompatible, um, this solution has a, a kind of universality to it in the sense that um, I, uh, it, it's something that can be applied outside the particular decision that I made in this particular circumstance. Uh, so I can. Um, I can uh, sort of set out the principle of um, how I made this decision, or I can I can explain it to someone else, and uh, it can be sort of reused in other circumstances. Um, and I think this sort of dual aspect um, of of uh, the the singular and the universal um, we also find in in the uh, deductive argumentation, because that's a kind of problem solving as well. Um, so the the cogito is always singular. It's always me as a as this thinking being that um, that uh, becomes certain of my own existence. Um, uh, but at the same time, it's something that any thinking being can perform uh, and and have the same certainty of of their own existence. Uh, so. There's a kind of, um, I guess, reversibility between the singular and the general in the cogito, uh, and then as a result of this um, sort of reversibility, um, this experience of the cogito founds uh, a system of universal knowledge. So because I can 
because anyone can perform the Kogito just uh, just as well as I can, or just as um, completely as I can. Uh, I can derive universal knowledge from the Kogito, even though it's a kind of singular experience uh, on the other side. Uh, and then I can deduce, um, uh, you know, the existence of the soul and its separateness from the body and the existence of God. And I can, uh, you know, found the whole system of knowledge on these propositions. Um, uh, and then everything sort of follows from there. Um, uh, so the universal science is um, a sort of consequence of the singular um, experience of the Kogito. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, Ali, would you like to read? Oh, um, maybe you're not available to read. Okay, I can uh, I can read the next bit. Um, let's see, where did we finish? Um, right, okay. Descartes accomplished in the sciences an effort that consisted in creating the homogeneity of the object where it didn't visibly exist. In mathematics, for example, Descartes showed that all geometrical realities could be put into equations through the intermediary of a coordinate system and so reduced to their projections over the axes and to the measurement of these projections. Uh, the geometrical rapports become homogeneous, for they are all expressible as the lengths of straight segments, which is translatable into algebraic numbers. The point of this reduction is not just to permit measurement, but to realize homogeneity. This homogeneity of the object is what allows for progress through transfer of certainty, or as Descartes says, the transport of evidence. Descartes knew how to make homogeneity appear in domains where it wasn't visible. This homogeneity is the fundamental condition of knowledge and of the individual's universality. Indeed, when the real is homogeneous, knowledge of the particular object is possible and can provide a full and complete certainty. If the real were heterogeneous, each object would first require choosing the, the suitable type of knowledge, and this determination of the type of knowledge could only occur based on a higher principle that wouldn't reside in the knowledge of each thing because it would be the condition of such knowledge. The realism of knowledge is another expression of this homogeneity of the object. Each particular proposition can be true, for the notion is not concept but idea. It does not suppose a plurality of experiences, the necessary basis for abstractive induction and conceptual knowledge starts with true and immutable natures provided by intellectual intuition. Here we come back to the reality of the individual. The individual has within him the intuition of true and immutable natures. In its principle, knowledge is direct relation of the mind to its object. No mediation, no preliminary induction is necessary. The individual being is not disinherited. He finds the conditions of true knowledge in isolation, at least at the start. Realism, homogeneity, and continuity of the real. These are, these are the postulates of Cartesian thought. Uh, so again, we have this discussion of uh, homogeneity um, as sort of realized in the Cartesian coordinates. So we can take any sort of curve, any sort of shape, uh, and we can translate it into the form of an equation, which is just um, some sort of relation between an X and a Y um, coordinate. Uh, and um, we so everything uh, in the the ex the world of extension in the world of extended things um, is ultimately just some sort of um, x and y coordinates uh, you know in some sort of relation to each other um, and uh, in particular or another aspect of this homogeneity is that we don't need to have um, conceptual knowledge of entities first we don't need to sort of um, start from uh, a knowledge of what a, a human being is um, before we can understand who you know who I am or what I am, uh, and this is something that Descartes explicitly mentions that he in um, the meditations um, that um, I I have this um, I learned in school or I I have this um, idea that a human being is a rational animal, and so I could try to define myself um, you know what I am as saying that I'm I am a rational animal, but then I would need to 
uh, first under understand what an animal is and then what rational is and then how to combine those two. Um, and then each of those terms would require further investigation, you know, an animal to understand what an animal is, I'd have to understand what a living being is and so on. Um, so uh, if you if you can only have knowledge of things through concepts, you have a sort of infinite regress of each concept presupposes some other concepts that you need to understand in order to understand the first concept. Uh, and then so Descartes here um, has instead this idea of intuitive knowledge of the natures of things. Um, so when I when I uh, perform the cogito and uh, recognize that I am a thinking thing, I don't um, first have to form a concept of what a thinking thing is in general and then decide that I fall under that concept, that I'm uh, an entity to which that concept applies. I have a sort of immediate knowledge of myself as a thinking thing. Uh, and uh, it's this immediate knowledge that allows for um, um, the sort of progress of knowledge and not have this infinite regress of concepts that you would have otherwise. Uh, and um, so this is another form of homogeneity or another um, kind of homogeneity because every entity um, uh, is sort of uh, graspable in, in terms of uh, intuitive knowledge, in terms of an idea as opposed to a concept that would um, classify those entities. So it's a, a knowledge occurs through intuition and not through uh, classification. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next bit. Uh, would someone else like to read from uh, the top of 568, uh, now this system? Uh, sure. Now, this system would be perfectly coherent with harmony, but the hero also, which is abstract, innate idea, there are adventitious idea, in fact, and in addition to the intelligence, there is also the quality, the passions and tendencies. The discontinuity and heterogeneity are an insofar as no deductive relation. It be said that this and that more with the help with the help of medicine, but homogeneity and Descartes has full of his nevertheless practical are this duality if deductive of knowledge to ensure the homo extended heterogeneity the under so far as by its clarity, the senses and the imagination that are head or an in however the body Right. Um yeah, so here we have um uh, this is Simon Don's reflection on this homogeneity and heterogeneity. Um, there's a sort of, uh, again, I would want to use the word dialectic here, even though this is not how Simon Don would describe it, but um, there's a kind of um, uh, transition or um, interrelation between homogeneity and heterogeneity in the sense that um, uh, Descartes wants to found the knowledge of the extended universe of uh, the natural world, of the physical world, on this um, sort of presupposition of, of homogeneity. So everything physical is an extended thing uh, and that's what its nature consists in. Uh, and that allows us to have geometrical knowledge of these extended things. And, and ultimately that's what allows us to have uh, knowledge of the physical world. Um, but this, uh, this same hetero uh, homogeneity of the natural world or the physical world, um, when it's when it comes to this one particular body, which is my body, uh, or more generally the human body, um, introduces this uh, heterogeneity in the sense that um, the the uh, the body and the soul are um, radically heterogene heterogeneous. Uh, they're radically different natures to each other, um, and the body through sensation introduces something um, heterogeneous into uh, into our experience. So we, we experience things as being uh, colored, hot or cold, uh, having particular tastes and so on. 
which are all these properties that don't inhere in um, things as they are in themselves, but are um, results of the way that these bodies affect us. And uh, so our our knowledge has this, um, uh, our knowledge of bodies is always uh, a sort of, um, uh, is, is intermingled with this um, affection by, other, by the bodies. So um, when Descartes gives his famous example of the piece of wax, um, he talks about how the wax has a certain smell, it has a certain shape and texture and a color and so on. Uh, all these properties um, are what we sort of first notice about this piece of wax. Um, but it's only when we uh, sort of uh, abstract from these uh, sensible qualities and grasp the piece of wax as a, a just a, a portion of extension uh, through an intellectual grasping of, of the entity, um, it's only then that we truly have knowledge of the entity. So there's a, a heterogeneity that uh, between uh, the true knowledge of, a, of an extended thing, which is intellectual, and this sensible affection by that thing. Um, and so um, it's, it's the, same, the same homogeneity of the extended world that makes uh, knowledge of that world possible also introduces heterogeneity within um, my experience or my uh, my mind, uh, insofar as um, my body to which my mind is associated or the soul is associated, um, uh, can be affected by other bodies and uh, have the resulting sensations occur uh, in my in my mind, and and so uh, this homogeneity creates heterogeneity in in my mind. I can read the next page, so sure. Yeah, go ahead. Nevertheless, the unique and ultimate principle is not the inheritance of innate ideas to the individual. This principle is first according to the order of reasons, but it supposes that ideas are comparable. In this comparison, supposes the idea of the absolutely perfect being. The whole activity of the intellect supposes this idea, which is the first and clearest of all, relative to which finite and limited beings are conceived. The individual is not the author of its being. The principle of lossless transfer is valid in this case, as in every other case. Quote, there is at least as much formal reality in the cause of an idea as there is objective reality in the idea itself, unquote. This principle is not different from that of the construction of realities. It is when we analyze the type of causality by which things can be produced and by which ideas can be formed that we understand that there must be a cause of the notions within us. These ideas are something real. If they weren't something real, they would not require a cause that has a formal reality. For Descartes, the reality of a thing is known when we know how it can be constructed. The idea's objective reality consists of reality. It is not a simple image without consistency. Realism is necessary for the demonstration of the existence of God in the third meditation to be valid. Here, Descartes employs a mode of thought that not only separates it completely from every non-realist theory, but also elevates it to the veritable status of being, uh, what we now call information, and which in Descartes is called the objective reality of an idea. This information is implicitly quantified and not just qualified by Descartes, since the reason why the idea of the infinite and the perfect cannot be recognized as factitious or adventitious is because it possesses an objective reality superior to that of any other reality of our thoughts. It thus cannot have been fabricated by the mind, which would have arbitrarily augmented and brought together in a fictive being, the perfections of which it has, the idea based on the experience of the senses. The human individual who is imperfect does not have enough formal reality to be the author of the infinite and perfect idea. 
whose objective reality is so great that it requires as its author a being that is itself innate and perfect, i.e. in possession of an infinite and perfect formal reality. The objective reality of an idea is a reality that can be one of the terms of the relation of causality, the other term of which is a formal reality. It is therefore unnecessary to prove existence before essence. There is a link of reality between essence and existence. This idea that uh, the idea of the perfect being is one uh, is an idea that the human mind is not capable of pausing uh, makes sense to me, but I don't really follow why he's calling this an information um, in the sense in which he uses this in volume one to mean like the resolution of the disparation. Right. Um, yeah, this, this is a, a kind of a difficult um, point here. So maybe I'll, I'll start with um, a terminological point um, about about Descartes' terminology. Um, so he, he uses these terms formal and objective being, um, uh, and it can be a little bit misleading because when, he, when Descartes talks about objective being, he means being in the mind. Um, uh, uh, so it's what we would call probably subjective as opposed to objective. And then formal being is being uh, outside of the mind. Um, uh, and uh, the argument, so Descartes' argument for, or, or one of the arguments that he presents for the existence of God is um, has to do with the uh, the sort of quantity of reality um, that is contained in the idea of God. So um, we Descartes um, has sort of uh, uh, swept clean the um, all the ideas that he um, uh, all the things that he accepted as true from his childhood, from his education, and everything, um, and then he performs the cogito and, and determines that uh, he can be certain at least of his own existence. Um, and then he, he sort of notices that he has this idea of, uh, of God or of a, a perfect being. Um, and um, he asks whether this idea, um, so, so this idea has objective existence um, and he wants, to, he wants to know whether there's a formal uh, existence of, the, of, of God um, uh, outside the idea or outside of the intellect um, and his argument is that um, because I am a finite being uh, I I have only a, a limited formal reality my my um, degree of reality or quantity of reality is limited um, you know you, you can assign a number to how much I exist or my um, my degree of existence uh, and um, the idea of a perfect being um, is something to which no number can be assigned, uh, is, is greater than any uh, finite number, um, uh, whatever number we would assign to um, degree of reality. Um, and so this formal, uh, the sorry, the objective being of the uh, an entity such that uh, nothing greater than it can be conceived um, uh, is something that surpasses the existence of uh, the formal reality that I contain, so my degree of existence. And um, the reason I think why Simondo wants to call this an information here is um, I think he's using the term information uh, not so much in his specific sense of the resolution of a, a disparation and so on, but I think he's talking about um, what he elsewhere calls quantity of information, 
so the more sort of um, traditional communication theory meaning of information. Uh, and so the idea is that um, uh, if we can consider the um, idea of God as uh, a kind of signal uh, or a kind of message, um, it contains more information than I, as the um, as the finite being, am capable of uh, sort of contributing to a message. It contains a, a, a greater quantity of information than that I am capable of uh, of transmitting. And so, if I find this signal sort of appears within within me, um, then I have to assume, or I have to deduce that uh, the source of this signal is uh, is outside of me, is not uh, something that is within me. Uh, so yeah, so I, I think the answer to your question is that he's he's using uh, information here to mean quantity of information and not his own specific um, meaning of information. Thanks, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, so there's sort of two steps to the, the argument that, that Descartes is giving for the existence of God is that first we show that um, the idea of God that I have can't be um, can't can't be something that I produced. It's it has re greater reality than I have. Uh, uh, it's it's something that surpasses my ability to produce. So it's it it's uh, something that came to me from outside of me, or it was caused by something outside of me. Um, and then the second step is to say that. Um, uh, because I have this clear and distinct idea of uh, of God, and all of my clear and distinct ideas are true, um, therefore um, uh, the source of this idea is God uh, Himself. So um, the first step is the idea is not something that is not caused by me or is not brought about by me. Uh, it it has to come from outside of me. Uh, and then the second step is ident identifying the source. Um, of this idea as being God and not some other uh, finite being or some other um, entity outside of me, um, and and so uh, as a result of these two steps, we we can conclude that God um, as the the being uh, uh, of which uh, we can attribute or to which we can attribute all perfections, uh, this being that um, has the greatest degree of existence possible, um, this being exists. Uh, and not just within uh, within my intellect, but uh, outside of me. Uh, and so that was what um, uh, what he sort of set out to show when, uh, when he considers this notion of God that I have uh, within my mind uh, is, is this uh, external reality or this external existence of God and not just in my intellect. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next bit. Um, I can read. Uh, where are we? This is certainly... Right. Okay. Thank you. This is certainly the most profound and also the newest aspect of Descartes' thought. By making information into a reality, Descartes gives the individual the role of an operator of information. This worker has limited forces, and he recognizes a being which is anterior and superior to him when he discovers a work of information that he cannot have made himself. The idea of the infinite and of the perfect is more than the mark of the worker stamped on his product. It is a work that remains operating as an active principle of information because this idea is the principle of judgment. Without it, methodical doubt would not be possible. It is given firstly. Knowledge is not a participation because the essences that are the object of human understanding are creatures of God. God is the guarantor of our knowledge, not through an attribute that relates to his understanding, 
but through attributes that relate to his creative power, omnipotence, and goodness. The human understanding takes this clear and distinct knowledge as a starting point and seeks out its combinations and effects. The calling of the individual being is to be the agent of this knowledge in its development. Man extends the creative activity of God. He is not just the foreman of creation. He also elaborates knowledge based on principles created by God. Uh, I'm going to stop here because there's a couple things to talk about in this passage before we go on to the next bit. Um, so there's the the one bit where uh, Simondon says that without God, methodical doubt would not be possible. Um, so this uh, is referring back to, uh, I believe, the first meditation, um, or possibly the second, I can't remember. Um, anyway, um, where Descartes um, brings up the idea of this evil spirit that, um, uh, you know, uh, makes me, um, uh, you know, make mistakes or or be in error every time that I try to make uh, a judgment. Um, and he points out that um, so he he first um, he first brings up the uh, the fact of dreaming. Um, so something that seems uh, you know immediately obvious, like the fact that I'm sitting at my desk right now. Uh, you know, it's something that I seem to to have. Uh, certain knowledge of uh, is something that I can doubt because I remember that um, in my dreams, I sometimes think that I'm, uh, you know, walking uh, in the street when I actually I'm lying in bed. Um, and uh, I, I sometimes think that I'm uh, doing something uh, when I'm dreaming, when in fact, I'm, I'm actually uh, not doing that thing or um, something that seems uh, sort of immediately obvious. Is, is something I can be mistaken about when I'm dreaming, and so because of this, I should uh, I should um, not sort of uh, take these propositions as as certain um, that I have to prove that I can I can have knowledge of any of these things. Uh, but then when I when I turn to um, mathematical propositions, uh, it seems like uh, you know if I try to add two plus two. Uh, whether I'm dreaming or not, the answer is still going to be four. Uh, or if I try to count the sides of a square and so on, um, any of these mathematical propositions, it seems like it doesn't really matter whether I'm dreaming or not. Um, they, I still have knowledge of these propositions. Um, and so it's it's here that Descartes has to um, appeal to um, this evil spirit or this um, entity, this much more powerful entity than me, who is capable of making me um, making me make a mistake every time I try to uh, add two plus two or or whatever other um, mathematical um, task I set myself, <clears throat> uh, and and so it's only because uh, because I can think of an entity, uh, an omnipotent entity that can uh, make me make mistakes. It's only because of this that I can doubt um, mathematical propositions, and and so this is why. Um, the existence of God um, is necessary for methodical doubt. Uh, but then it's only later, once I prove that God exists outside of my intellect and um, that I uh, uh, understand that uh, God as a perfect being can't be uh, evil or malicious and um, deceitful, uh, it's only then that I can understand that um that God as a perfect being would not um, deceive me in uh, in performing mathematical tasks. And so if something like uh, two plus two equals four, uh, if I you know conceive this proposition, then I know it's true. Uh, so it, it's um, it's only later in the development, once I show that God as a perfect being 
uh, is also benevolent and and not deceitful um, that I can conclude that mathematical propositions are true. Uh, so um, and Descartes also holds um, the uh, sort of paradoxical position that uh, mathematical truths and necessary truths in general are the product of God's um, volition. So God willed that for that two plus two should equal four. Um, and he could have willed otherwise. He could have decided that two plus two would equal five, um, or he could have decided that a uh, triangle would have uh, uh, you know angles that are greater than two right angles or whatever other um, mathematical or, or logical proposition could have been otherwise if God had uh, decided to to create it otherwise. Um, and and so our our knowledge. So it's not not just our knowledge of mathematical propositions that depends on. Our knowledge of God as a, a a beneficent being, but the existence or the obtaining of these mathematical and logical propositions also depends on God, uh, on God's will. Um, so there's a sort of double dependence. Uh, there's a epistemological dependence of uh, um, our knowledge of these mathematical and logical propositions on our knowledge of God, and then there's an ontological dependence of the obtaining of these propositions on God's will. Uh, so the the moment of or this this point in the deduction where Descartes um, deduces that God exists independently of me or outside my intellect, and also that um, God is beneficent, uh, is sort of the the hinge around which everything else uh, uh, rotates. And so without that, um, without that, I can't actually um, have any certain knowledge about the world at all. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next bit. Uh, from and yet, uh, I can read again. Um, and yet, a difficulty always remains concerning the heterogeneity of the soul and the body. The individual appears to be created by God, but for thought alone. Isn't it necessary to begin again with a new study for the body? The body also appreciates through pleasure and pain that a thing is useful or harmful to it. Pleasure is the mark of an augmentation of being. According to what principle is this qualitative appreciation possible? Following the same reasoning as the one Descartes applies to ideas, could we not thereby manage to discover the existence of a form of reality distinct from the body and more powerful than it? For it could be that a number of these qualitative appreciations carried by way of the body surpass the reactions arising from the adventitious data or factitious acquisitions due to some corporeal elaboration. As tendency or instinct, this would therefore be in the individual the mark of a reality superior to the individual the formal reality great enough to cause the objective reality of the instinct or tendency. This reality could certainly be found to be identical to the one uh, to the one to which the idea of the infinite and the perfect refers. But then the non-homogeneity between the mind and the body would persist. The body is not just an operator of information. It assimilates, generates, dis- dissimilates, develops, ages, mates. These operations are not Operations of pure production, they imply types of organization that are not merely the transfer of a quantity of movement or of information. The body integrates and differentiates. Descartes privileged the operative aspect of constructive thought in the individual and more generally everything that is operative. He supposes given structures in the body, like that of the heart, and shows that life is just a functioning of these structures. Founded on homogeneity, in continuity, a system finds coherence at the price of discontinuity and a heterogeneity for which the system cannot account, that of the soul and the body. 
beyond this discontinuity, it must be seen that Descartes, for the being privileged in individuality, the fact of being adult and active, productive and free. But individuality also involves other complementary aspects that are just as important and cannot be separated from the first. The individual is not just a created being, he is also an engendered being who dies. Timelessness does not exist for the individual, although he is aware of timelessness. This vital aspect of the individual through which he belongs to communities, through which he originates in groups and has traditions, through which he is determined to determined in advance to act in ways that are all plotted out, has not been contemplated by Descartes. His search for universality is precisely what allows the individual to not merely be the being who behaves and who is determined, integrated. It nonetheless remains that the Cartesian conception of the individual is still an optative, more so than an elucidation of the real as a whole. So this, this seems like another instance of a problem of participation that Simon Don uh, solves with the, you know, with his philosophy of the pre-individual and, and individuation, because there is kind of something like a formal reality distinct from the body that produces, uh, or that, you know, confronts the vital individual with affect when affect becomes a separate problematic, as he says in volume one, um, but it's the pre-individual and there's no, it's not, it's not like a God of the body, which is what he is insinuating Descartes would require, um, because it's the same pre-individual that causes the uh, vital individuation and the psychic individuation. Yeah, I think here we can think um, of the uh, the indefinite dyad that we were talking about before we started recording. Um, um, so in sensation, um, uh, in pleasure and pain, the the body has a reaction to um, some affection that it receives from other bodies. Uh, so uh, there's a in pleasure and pain, there's a, a sort of motion towards and a, mo- a motion away from uh, whatever the affection is. Um, and uh, so there, or there's a, a greater degree of reality or, or a, a lesser degree of reality that we experience as pleasure and pain. Um, and um, there's a kind of um, it's, it's because there's this sort of indefinite dyad of the living being or this uh, uh, relation of the living being to something outside itself, which has the form of this indefinite dyad. Uh, it's precisely because of this that we can't understand the living being as something um, sort of uh, as just a piece of extension in the way that Descartes wants to understand it. Um, uh, and so like for, for Descartes, uh, the human heart is just uh, an extremely complicated um, mechanism, like a watch, you know, more perfect because it's created by God and not by finite like us. Um, and it, it just uh, operates through the motion of various pieces of extension that um, impact each other in various ways and you know, interlock and produce all sorts of effects that we um, that we call life. Um, but uh, this this sort of leaves out the uh, interrelation or the the status of being that relation has. Um, uh, it leaves out the whole aspect of the um, uh, pointing towards something outside of itself in the indefinite dyad that that Simondon identifies. And uh, so he points out in the, the later part of this paragraph that a living being is not just sort of a, an immediate product of God as a created being, um, but also a being that um, is engendered by certain parents, um, that, that has a childhood, that grows up, uh, uh, learns certain uh, traditions and, and uh, a particular culture, 
um, and and uh, and so the the individual is sort of embedded in a in a world in a way that um, Descartes doesn't account for or or has to exclude in order to make um, the the uh, vital reality in order to reduce vital reality to uh, purely the operations of extension in motion uh, and it's this sort of pointing beyond itself uh, that um, or this embeddedness in something outside of itself that Simondon is identifying here as being uh, the the sort of aspect that Descartes has to leave out in order to um, allow for his mechanical uh, system to to sort of take effect. What is excluded there sounds a lot like world in the like Heideggerian sense to me. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, so in in being in time, Heidegger um, uses Descartes as a, a sort of foil. Um, he he presents the Cartesian conception of um, extension as being the the sort of um, degradation of um, the the concept of distance and uh, um, the the uh, the way that Dasein is related to other entities in the world. Uh, and um, I think Simondon is making um, in some ways a similar argument, but also a somewhat different argument, um, because he thinks that um, he doesn't see Descartes as sort of um, uh, a degradation or uh, a loss of of that um, world aspect that that Heidegger points to. Um, I think he he sees the mechanical philosophy of Descartes as something um, uh, valuable, uh, as as sort of grasping an aspect of the world's um, but at the same time, it sort of leaves out another aspect of the world. Uh, and um, the idea for Simondon is not to say that the the world um, in the Heideggerian sense is sort of primary and more important uh, than Cartesian extension, but rather that we should be able to um, think both of them at the same time. We, we have to be able to understand uh, living beings as um, entities that are uh, physical, that... that um, have uh, you know mechanical parts in in the ways that Descartes um, identifies, uh, or you know there's physiological operations of you know joints and muscles and all this stuff that that physiologists study. Um, but then at the same time, there's this embeddedness in something uh, or this pointing towards something outside of the living being that is not um, purely mechanical uh, that we also have to be able to grasp at the same time. So. Whereas for Heidegger, there is a kind of um, uh, uh, focus on the world aspect as being more fundamental and then the uh, Cartesian extension as derived from it and, and uh, kind of falling away from a grasp of the world. For Simondon, what, what he wants to do is to grasp both at the same time. Yeah, I think in general, whenever Simondon comes across some sort of um, binary opposition, he wants to find a way of making them compatible, making the two terms compatible. You know, this this is his sort of general schema for problem solving is um, you know some sort of opposition or incompatibility, and then finding the or inventing uh, a new dimension, a new um, organization of the problem space that allows for those two incompatibles to become uh, compatible. Uh, and so that's what he's trying to do here, I think, as well. Okay, uh, let's go on um, from the special mode of intelligibility. If someone else would like to read, no, I can do it. Sure, go ahead. Uh, so. Sorry, so that's a uh, page five, six. Could you tell me like the exact pages? I just kind of got a little lost right here. 
Right. Uh, so on, on, the, on the PDF, it's page 571. So again, like, uh, don't you get the point? Yeah, so the it's the first full paragraph, so starting from the special mode of intelligibility. Okay, uh, sorry, and thank you. The special mode of intellig intelligibility of the uh, repo of the soul and the body is a finality which excluded from physics reigns sover sovereignly over the union of the soul and the body. A union which, however, is merely an interaction that remains unknown in its uh, causality. This union of the soul and the body is world by nature for the conservation of our being. In this sense, this the approximate cause of the passions are ignored, but they can they can be comprehended by uh, re recognizing their utility, which consists in the fact that they strengthen and prolong thoughts in the soul, which it is good for the soul to preserve and and which otherwise might be easily erased from it. Uh, in the same way, it reflects action, if reflects Actions like the uh, pupillary reflex are finalized and depend on the will. This also uh, applies to the movement of the lips and tongue, which serve to pronounce words and uh, code which are called voluntary because they follow from the wish to speak, even though we often ignore which ones must be used in the pronunciation of each, each letter. End of quote. The notions of force, of substantial forms, of finally are not illusory, illusory in themselves. They are true relative to the union of the soul and the body, according to which a spiritual being acts within the really unextended being. The medicine of the passions consists in relating the passions to their proper, finally, physical, uh, there are Therapeutics in intellectual therapeutics give to the power of the will a sovereign authority over the passions. The soul does not add any force to the body. It is not a driving force and does not increase the quantity of movement. The soul acts like a horseman on his mount, changing the animal's direction without modifying its momentum. In the description that he gives, Descartes seems to find an example in the automatons that he came to admire in the king's gardens. These automatons generally utilizes, utilize the pressurized water as a driving force. Multiple valves moved by unspecified physical effects, like the action of the st a stroller on a flagstone, distributed this water into various motorized devices, thereby executing movements in arti articulated statues. These commands could also be left to the hydraulic engineer's discretion. It could act with the slightest energy on the valves and distribute the water to its liking, thus executing considerable movements surpassing the energy that a man can deploy. In this fashion, with the slightest movement of the hand, one can work hydraulic press connected to a source of a pressurized water. Constructed as a multitude of hydraulic pistons, these automatic statues could be endowed by the hydraulic engineer with a certain automa automatism for the accomplishment of fast movement could trigger another movement, which itself would control a third in such a way as to bring about a recurrent series. Descartes entrusts the pioneer gland in the human body with the whole 
played in the automatic statues by the multi-port valves. Pressure, pressurized water is represented by the sanguary vapor, which is the most volatile part of the uh, blood, vaporized by the heat of the heart, which constitutes an animal spirits. The card consequently supposes that the soul can direct the movement of the animal spirits by exposing a certain orifice of the efferent nervous frenulums of the pineal gland. This pressurized vapor will then inflate, inflate a certain vessel, and by expanding it, will shorten it like an, an extensible balloon that becomes inflated and takes on a spherical form. The nervous frenulums are conceived as tiny tubules whose diameter is nonetheless sufficient to, due to the extreme subtlety of the gas called animal spirits. Today, we call a device like the one Descartes imagines in the pioneer gland a relay, and it is indeed correct that a relay can, which as little energy as one desires, commands a quite considerable amount of energy without adding it to, adding to, or taking away from it. But still, the control energy must exist and be able to exert an action on the control device of the factor energy. It is difficult to conceive how the soul, without being res extensa, could control the animal spirits in the pioneer gland. Here, the inverse yeah, action. Yeah. Uh, no, stop here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, let's stop here. Yeah, thanks. You're welcome. Um, right, so this is now passing to the, uh, the physics of, uh, uh, or the physiology of the human body and uh, the sort of quasi-solution that, that Descartes presents uh, of how the soul um, acts on the on the body to bring about voluntary movement. Um, and so this, so in Descartes' physics, um, there's a conservation of motion, of, of the quantity of motion, uh, as opposed to um, in uh, uh, later physical systems, we have a conservation of momentum. Um, and the difference here, the key difference is that um, the quantity of motion is the same, is, is, is the same uh, no matter what direction that motion is, uh, is going in. Uh, so uh, what this allows for, this is a, a sort of opening for um, the soul to act on the direction of motion of the um, uh, animal spirits. Um, so this is a, for Descartes, the animal spirits are, um, a sort of um, gas that is uh, produced um, by uh, or out of the blood um, and it fills the nerves and then the soul acts on um, the, uh, the pineal gland which is a particular um, gland in the in the brain um, and in this pineal gland the um, uh, the soul is able to change the direction of motion uh, and uh, bring about uh, some sort of uh, transfer of, of the motion from one direction to another in, within the nerves in the body. Uh, uh, yes, so the, the quantity of motion is a scalar, uh, and then uh, and it doesn't have direction, whereas momentum is a vector, uh, which has both magnitude and direction. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so for, for Descartes, uh, the world of the race extensa um, is characterized by uh, conservation of, mo of motion, of the, the scalar quantity of motion. <clears throat> um, 
And uh, it's only through the intervention of the soul um, that the direction of that motion within the human body is realized. Um, and, and so he gives a, a, a physiological explanation of how, for example, um, uh, the, the soul can bring about, um, say, the movement of my arm. Um, so the, the, the soul um, imprints a certain direction on the uh, uh, animal spirits within the pineal gland in my brain. Uh, which is transmitted through the nerves down my arm and um, acts on the muscle in my arm to make it uh, contract and uh, and then bend my arm uh, and so on. Um, um, and so this whole sort of model, it's a kind of hydraulic model of, uh, of um, human physiology. And uh, Simono points to uh, there were these sort of um, uh, famous um, hydraulic statues uh, at um, at Versailles um, around this time uh, that uh, operated so that they had of course operated on water pressure um, but their the motion of these uh, hydraulic statues was um, uh, controlled by um, these various valves that were um, sort of moved by uh, the the motion of the people as they walked through the um, garden where these statues were found so if you step on a certain tile, then your the pressure of your foot will open a valve which allows the water to pass through the tubes in in the statue and then the statue does moves or does something whatever exactly it was um and some of these um uh statues were were quite sophisticated it wasn't just sort of one movement but one movement leads to another movement which you know brings about a third movement and so on so there, there was a sort of um uh uh, succession of movements and not just one uh, simple movement. Uh, and so this this kind of um, auto automatic mechanism is how, how Descartes understands the um, uh, functioning of the human body. Um, uh, so the nerves are the these tiny tubes that contain animal spirits that bring about the motions of uh, various parts of the body. And so um, Simondon compares this to um, uh, a regulator of some kind. So there's um, uh, a kind of uh, so you can control a greater a greater um, energy using a lesser energy. Um, and and he's given examples of this, like uh, in uh, sorry in um, the other book, the on the mode of existence of technical objects. He talks about how in a, a vacuum tube, there's a um, uh, the command energy and the uh, I forget what the other energy is called, but anyway, there's um, you can use a, a very small quantity of energy to control a very large quantity of energy. Um, but he points out here that um, where, where Descartes' model sort of breaks down is the fact that the we can't conceive of the action of the soul as a very small quantity of energy. Um, it, the very small doesn't really help us at all. It's still There's still a heterogeneity, a radical heterogeneity between the, um, the, the soul and the body. Um, and in order for the soul to have any kind of action on the body, it would have to have um, a kind of energy that it is capable of acting on the body. And so it would have to be homogenous with the body in, in that sense. Um, and so because Descartes um, insists on this radical heterogeneity of the soul and the body, the, this very small uh, energy, this control energy of the soul um, doesn't really help us to understand the union of the body and the soul. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next bit. Um, I can read 
a page or so of this multi-page paragraph. Um, right. The inverse action is just as possible and is affected in passion. The passions are, quote, feelings or emotions of the soul which we relate specifically to it and which are caused, maintained, and fortified by some movement of the animal spirits, unquote. Now, even if it is simply difficult to conceive how the soul can control the animal spirits, it is impossible to conceive how the animal spirits can act on the soul based on the pineal gland itself. If this gland is structured in such a way as to behave as a relay, it specifically prevents the re reflexive action of the controlled energy on the control energy. A relay transmits causality in a rigorously irreversible way. Without this condition, it couldn't do its job. Conceived as a possible action in two directions, communication is not possible according to the Cartesian schema of the link between the soul and the body. The profound reason for this impossibility is that Descartes only acknowledges instantaneous actions without duration. So a reciprocal action upholding, upholding the energetic distinction of the terms of the relation is only possible if the energetic action of one of the terms on the other is deferred and persists as potential energy for a certain amount of time. There is nothing more opposed to the Cartesian conception of being than potential. Everything is actual for Descartes, and his critique of Aristotle's physics is primarily a critique of potential reality. This refusal of all potentials goes all the way to rejecting action at a distance, to such an extent that the notion of a field of forces is deprived of meaning for Descartes and to such an extent that he wanted to interpret Gilbert's experiments on magnetic fields in terms of action by contact at the price of quite incoherent hypotheses. Only the action of shock mechanics is real for Descartes, and yet it can be wondered if the individual may be conceived as a totally actual being, fully given in the instant. This postulate of Descartes is also a limit. Thus it becomes clear that the ultimate aspect of morality is not exercise of the will. The soul has its own separate pleasures, and more generally it has passions that do not depend on the body. Sovereign beatitude depends on these passions. The passions that constitute our beatitude must arise from the clear and distinct idea of human nature. Here is where the final aspect of the paradox of individuality intervenes for Descartes. We know ourselves clearly not just as a, a being endowed with a free will and a soul un united with a body, but as part of a whole without which we cannot survive. Quote, Each of us is really one of the many parts of the universe, and more particularly a part of the earth, the state, the society, and the family to which he belongs by pledge and by birth. And the interests of the whole, of which each of us is a part, must always be preferred to those of our particular person. This is the way in which a, quote, intellectual love, unquote, towards the whole to which we owe our perfections is defined. This reasoned love can estimate our relative value with respect to the whole. It increases to the extent that this value diminishes. Descartes declares that we, we should sacrifice ourselves only for what has more value than us. If a man through his death can keep all the inhabitants of a village from being executed, and if he estimates that together they all have more value than him, he must sacrifice himself. If not, he shouldn't. In literature, the notion of esteem is the degradation of this reasoned love defined by Descartes. The estimation of our value is the fruit of generosity, passion representative, representative of the search for truth when this passion concerns ourselves. Human values reside, uh, sorry, human value resides in the will and in the steadiness with which it always decides on what appears to the intelligence as the best. Humility or contempt have no meaning at that point, because in everyone free will is infinite and capable of an equal virtue. This dependence is highlighted with regard to God in particular. Quote, before he sent us into the world, he knew exactly what all the inclinations of our will would be. He knew that our free will would determine us to such or such an action, and he so willed it. Unquote. Consequently, quote, Abandoning oneself completely to his will, one rids oneself of one's particular interest and has no other passion save to do what one believes to be agreeable to him. This conclusion is not absolutely in agreement with the starting point. The gap remains between Descartes' provisional morality and his definitive morality. Through the rule of decision, provisional morality contributes an extremely new conception of action that turns the individual into an absolute principle of action. On the contrary, wisdom involves a number of precepts that would only be justified absolutely in a pantheistic cosmology and metaphysics that herald the thought of Spinoza. 
This duality comes from the duality that persists in the reality of the individual. The God to which the notion of the infinite and the perfect refers is not in the same relation with respect to us as the God that has destined us to a certain body, to belong to a certain society, and to be born at a certain moment. The existence of the individual as principle of action and of certain knowledge does not fully co coincide with his existence as part of a community and ultimately as part of the world, with a given body and engaged in a given circumstance. In the first sense, the individual is like a principle. In the second sense, he is part of the whole and does not have within himself his entire reason for existing. God, creator of true and immutable natures, or of the idea of the infinite and the perfect, is not necessarily at the same time creator of relation in the here and now, for this latter relation is not known through intellectual intuition. It is not a structure. This relation can only be lived and not thought. It is difficult to readmit at the level of wisdom that whose elimination has been practiced at the time of methodical doubt as a condition of the position of the first judgment of existence, which is at the same time the paradigm of every valid affirmation, the cogito. Oh, this is profound. No idea. Yeah, Descartes is, um, I mean, he's kind of uh, the the bad guy of, of philosophy for the last uh, 100 years or so. Um, everyone sort of wants to say, like, criticize someone else as being Cartesian or or say that they're sort of surpassing Descartes and so on. Um, but uh, I think, I mean, there's a lot, obviously, in Descartes that, that we would want to um, sort of distinguish ourselves from and criticize and so on. But um, at the same time, he's a very... Um, uh, um, he's a very clear and systematic thinker. So um, you can always find uh, a problem specified in a, a very clear way in Descartes uh, that sort of sets the stage for um, other people um, that have to sort of address the problem that, that Descartes poses, even if he doesn't give a, a satisfactory solution to it. Um, and, and so I think, um, and, and the other aspect is that he always thinks, um, uh, thinks different topics together in a way that is important, I think, for for later philosophy. So he he um, he doesn't just sort of give his opinions on one topic and then give his opinions on some other topic. He he's always thinking about you know how does how does the physics of um, you know the theory of motion uh, how does that relate to um, morality and um, the freedom of the will, for example. Uh, those are um, Topics that might seem completely distinct, but for Descartes, we have to sort of um, have an understanding. Uh, he wants to have a, a system of thought that allows us to understand both of those things together. And I think that's um, admirable as well. What's oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I, no sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was, I was the comments on ethics because I never characterized this, uh, the thought. It never crossed my mind until the end of the segment. Maybe. Yeah. The, taking, the, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just going to answer that uh, first before um, uh, I'll let you comment after that, Ali. Um, um, yeah, so the we saw a little bit earlier the um, provisional um, ethics or provisional morality that um, that Descartes um, sort of specifies as uh, what we have to, how we have to guide ourselves in the meantime while we're waiting for science to be completed. Um, but there's also um, uh, a sort of um, uh, I guess final morality that comes after the system of science is completed, and this um, there's there even though um, they should sort of coincide, there's a kind of gap between them because there's always um, this aspect that Descartes tries to leave out of um, of science, which is sort of the insertion in the world that we talked about earlier. So it's not just um, so uh, I as an ethical agent or a moral agent. And not just a sort of um, free thought, uh, this sort of principle of thinking 
that exists uh, independently of anything around me. I'm a person that lives in a particular city and country. Um, you know, I have, I have particular friends and family and so on, uh, and I have to act in relation to all, all of those things. Um, I can't just sort of abstract from all those things and um, sort of come up with ethical principles that define uh, my action in abstract terms. I have to act in relation to these concrete uh, circumstances where I find myself. And um, Descartes doesn't really have, uh, or this is a sort of problem that Descartes uh, ends up with um, because he, he doesn't have a good way of um, explaining how we should understand this insertion into the world and into the circumstances where we find ourselves. I meant to just like a tag the question, previous question. That's why I tried to uh, say the, the question related to the previous question of 6-1 is that like the... I mean, for the character, like, uh, was there any kind of difference, differentiation, distinction between the uh, concept of morality and the ethics? Because as far as I understand, like, the two did Spinoza, or I mean, going uh, further, um, definitely ethics, ethics and then morality has their own distinctions. In the second, the, as far as I understand, that um, the card, in a way, like a. Uh, he has dealt he dealt with the human being as an individual, just a part of the uh the whole community. But, so um as far as I understand, like uh, he seemed not to allow like um individuals like uh, to experience some kind of transition or modification or I mean change like um uh, change like uh, in it. So it's just like a function as a as a part of the the whole community. So I mean, it's in a way like it sounds r- really uh, rational and the radical, logical. But the, uh, if it goes down to the individual level, I mean, the car, like, a, does he, he really? Did he really like a think of individuality of individual? Like, because like the last part is really, uh, really something like has something in it. Um, and then in, in terms of a relation between the community and the individual as well. So these kind of um, kind of question to two two of the things. First one is differentiation between morality and ethics in terms of a Cartesian idea. And the second one is like individual uh, in, in, in terms of like the uh, part of community. How does it function like in terms of a Cartesian idea? Yeah, those are both uh, good questions. Um, I think on the first one, um, I don't think Descartes makes a distinction between ethics and morality or morals. Um, the the term that he uses is is, um, is morals. Uh, like he talks about a provisional morals. Um, I'm not sure if he ever uses the term ethics to describe what he wants to do. Uh, I'd have to, you know, like I'm not a sort of a Descartes expert. Um, I'd have to sort of take a look and see if I can find that somewhere. Um, but yeah, so he he generally uses uses the term morals. Um, but uh, I don't think he ever makes a distinction between morals and ethics. Um, so it, it's, it's interesting that Spinoza, um, in developing a sort of post-Cartesian system of, of thought, he chooses the term ethics as opposed to morals um, uh, for, his, uh, for his book, um, which we can maybe see as you know, an attempt to differentiate himself in, or differentiate what he's doing from Descartes' project of uh, you know, the provisional morality. Um, because Spinoza's system of ethics is not supposed to be provisional uh, in the way that Descartes' uh, system of morals is. Um, 
the system of ethics is uh, uh, deduced from uh, our knowledge of God and uh, our our knowledge of um, the soul and so on. Uh, all of that is uh, part of the deductive science. Uh, so ethics is a deductive science for Spinoza in a way that it, morals is not for Descartes. Mm. Okay, thank um, you. Yeah, uh, so on, on the second question about this um, relationship between the individual and the community um, for Descartes. Um, so I think I think you're right to say that Descartes doesn't have an understanding or a, a way of presenting how an individual can change over the course of an action. Uh, and for Simon though, this is sort of a key um, idea. Uh, so if we want to conceive of solving a problem, uh, we have to think of the the individual to whom the problem is posed as uh, going through some sort of transformation. Uh, otherwise, it's not it's not really a problem. If if we can face a situation and um, resolve whatever difficulty we're faced with without undergoing any sort of transformation, then it's not that situation was not really a problem. It's only when we have to undergo a transformation and uh, uh, bring about the compatibility between something that was incompatible that we we are actually faced with a problem uh and so descartes um has as uh the quote that that simon Don gives here um talks about how um before i was ever created god knew what i would choose in every circumstance so even though i have free will um god knew what i would freely choose to do uh in in all the different circumstances that come up in my life uh and so there's a kind of um predestination of all of my decisions. Uh, and, and, you know, this does sort of make it difficult to understand what exactly that freedom consists in if I, uh, if all of my decisions are, are sort of known in advance. Um, but uh, uh, because all of my decisions are known in advance, uh, it means that um, what I, what I choose to do in a particular situation can never transform who I am. Uh, like the, the future course of my life is already, determined, even if I experience myself as um, making various choices in in uh, particular situations. Uh, and so this is a, another sort of difficulty for Descartes of, of um, trying to give a, an explanation of how we, um, how we can, uh, or, or the difficulty is that he sort of has to ex- exclude the whole aspect of uh, decision and problem solving as uh, bringing about a transformation of the individual. And instead, he has to think of the individual as something that is determined uh, already from its creation as it, its whole life course is already determined. Oh, interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you. Right. Uh, let me just, was there anything else I wanted to mention in this passage? Um, oh, yes. I wanted to explain briefly the bit about the magnet here that uh, that Simon Don brings up. Um, so Descartes, uh, so Gilbert um, wrote a book in the 17th century, I forget exactly the year, but he, he wrote a book about um, magnets and magnets were sort of um, uh, an object of fascination uh, throughout the, I mean, from, I guess, the, the medieval period onwards um, because they they have this, uh, it, it's easy to explain the operation of a magnet in Aristotelian terms, like the, the, the magnet, uh, the compass needle, has uh, an attraction to the north. Uh, it's drawn towards the north. Uh, uh, it sort of wants to point north. And so, if you pull the compass needle in a, in another direction or or move it um, away from that uh, that orientation, it um, sort of automatically uh, or through its own action, it 
turns itself back towards the north. And, uh, and so this is something you can sort of easily make sense of in Aristotelian terms. Um, uh, but if you want to have a mechanical physics, uh, so a, a physics that doesn't appeal to final causes and doesn't appeal to um, the direction of entities uh, towards a goal, then magnets are sort of a problem case. And you have to have some sort of explanation of how, how a magnet can operate um, uh, through purely mechanical causes. And Descartes comes up with this complicated explanation in terms of uh, uh, vortices. Uh, so it's, it's sort of like a, a whirlpool. There's like all these, the magnet emits these tiny particles um, that circle around in these uh, complex uh, vortices. And um, the, these vortices um, sort of impact these tiny particles, impact the, uh, the compass needle and uh, uh, cause it to, to point north, uh, for example. Um, and uh, what Simondon points out in one of the footnotes here is that um, the expl Descartes explanation um, only, it, it doesn't, it only accounts for half of the uh, phenomena that we see with magnets. So you can, you can use this whirlpool or, or vortex explanation to, um, to account for how magnets attract each other or how two um, uh, like magnets oppose each other, uh, repel each other, but you can't account for both at the same time. Uh, so th if the vortex goes in one direction, you can account for um, the attraction of two opposite poles of a magnet. Um, or if, if the vortex goes in the other direction, you can account for the um, repulsion of two like ma uh, poles of a magnet uh, from each other, but you can't account for both at the same time because then the vortex would have to go in both directions at the same time. Uh, and so Descartes physics is completely um, uh, um, devoid of any notion of action at a distance. And there was a whole controversy uh, later in the 18th century between the Cartesians and the Newtonians when, when Newton introduces the notion of gravity as uh, action at a distance. Um, the Cartesians argue that this is a sort of obscure quality, um, occult quality, I should say. Um, it's... Uh, it's a like similar to scholastic notions like the um, uh, you know the heavy objects sort of wanting to be towards the center of the universe uh, and uh, and so for Cartesians you need to have a mechanical explanation of um, why heavy objects stick to the earth and uh, or fall towards the ground and so on um, and uh, so this is sort of the one of the fundamental oppositions in uh, 17th and 18th century physics is between the Cartesians and then later the Newtonians um, that allow for something like action at a distance. Okay, uh, I, I said we were going to uh, finish in an hour and a half, but it ended up being closer to two hours anyway. Um, but yeah, we're at a, a end point here. So let's, um, let's stop here for today and we'll pick up on the section on, there's a short section on Pascal. Uh, let's see, well, it's not that short, maybe four pages, five, uh, yeah, a couple pages on, on Pascal and then uh, on to Spinoza after that. Okay, thank you so much. See you next week. That sounds great. great. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye.